Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Oret Okunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Pictures emerging from New York over the last few days look like something out of an apocalyptic film edited with a hazy sepia filter. But that orange hue is very real. We dive into the data and assess the impact of these raging wildfires in North America. And a look into the life of a woman who claimed to be the mother of one of the world's most powerful leaders. However, her alleged son denied her until the day she died. First up, though... Trump is in trouble with the law again. Here because we have a Fox News alert. Donald Trump says on Truth Social that he's been indicted. Quote, the corrupt Biden administration has informed my attorneys that I have been indicted, seemingly over the boxes hoax, even though Joe Biden... Yesterday, he announced that he's been indicted following a long-running investigation into his handling of classified documents after he left office. This comes after an FBI raid at his Mar-a-Lago home. In a video posted to the social platform Truth Social, he called the charges a hoax. Very sadly, we're a nation in decline, and yet they go after a popular president, a president that got more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country, by far, and did much better the second time in the election than the first and they go after him on a boxer's hoax. It was a difficult day for Mr. Trump. Hours earlier, his former vice president, Mike Pence, laid into his old boss while launching his own bid for the Republican presidential nomination. I believe that anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put them over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. It's just the latest on a growing list of problems for the former president. But yet, he is still the favorite to become the Republican nominee for the upcoming presidential election next year. This case could be the most serious legal threat to Donald Trump so far. John Priddo is The Economist's US editor and the host of Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics. It's a bit complicated, the case against him, as so many of these cases are. But the short version is that when he left office, when he left the White House, he took lots of documents with him to Mar-a-Lago. And the Justice Department came to him, came to his lawyers and said, we think you've got these documents, please can we give them back? In total, after, about a year after he left office, there were 184 documents still 
at Mar-a-Lago that were marked as classified. And so this case relates to those documents. It's a case about mishandling classified information and obstructing justice because Donald Trump was given various opportunities to really cooperate with the FBI over this and didn't really do so. So what exactly is Trump being prosecuted for this time? What do we know about those charges? How serious are they? All right, let me just back up for a sec. So what we are expecting today is an indictment from the Justice Department. It's possible that the indictment doesn't lead to a prosecution, but most people think that it will. So if he is prosecuted, it'll probably be under the Espionage Act. That sounds like Donald Trump's being charged with being a spy. That's not the case. It's just that these kinds of highly classified documents are covered by the Espionage Act rather than by some other piece of law. We don't have the charges officially yet. What we're expecting is that they will be charges for obstruction of justice, willful retention of secret documents, that sort of thing. And what have Mr Trump and his legal team had to say? Well, in terms of what Mr Trump has said to his supporters, He's really been consistent. All the cases against him, he's taken the same line. He's said, I'm the victim of a witch hunt by the deep state. And what he's really trying to do is turn these cases from what you think they might be, which is a threat to his chances of re-election, into a sort of political asset. His lawyers have been a bit more sober than that and said that he denies the allegation. Mr. Trump, of course, denies these allegations as well. It's important to make that clear. Donald Trump wrote on his own social media platform, Truth Social, I'm an innocent man, we'll prove that again, seven years of proving it, and here we go again, very unfair, but that's the way it is. So it's that sort of thing. Donald Trump's team also have released a short video about the charges. So you can see already this playing into the other big thing that's going on in Republican politics at the moment, of course, which is the primary. And John, has he had much support from other Republicans? He's had a fair amount of support over this one. I think a lot of senior Republicans who are not that keen on Donald Trump think that the federal government overreached in raiding Mar-a-Lago in the first place, and they're perhaps not convinced that the retention of these documents is as serious as the FBI and the Justice Department seem to think it is. So the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has said this is a dark day for the United States, and he stands with Trump. So that's fairly representative of where the sort of institutional Republican Party is these days. There has been some, not quite criticism, but a different line from some of Mr. Trump's primary rivals. Some of them have just stayed silent, which is kind of interesting in itself. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who announced his candidacy this week, has said, look, let's wait and see what the facts are in this case. You know, that's what we do in America and at least is prepared to countenance the possibility that Donald Trump has broken the law here and that that's pretty serious. And you said that this is possibly the most dangerous legal development for Mr. Trump. Remind us what other legal challenges he's facing. Yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about these cases over the next few months already. So I'll try and make this clear, but when you list them, it gets pretty confusing. So first off, there's the civil case, which Donald Trump was already found liable. Liable is important because a civil case is a question of liability rather than guilt. But that was the E. Jean Carroll sexual assault case. 
Then there's a case in Manhattan that's brought by the Manhattan DA, the district attorney, and that's about falsifying business records that relate to the payments made to an adult film star in 2016 to keep quiet about an alleged affair that she had with Donald Trump. So that's a state-level case. There's one other state case which is really interesting, which is in Fulton County, Georgia, and this relates to possible breaches of election law. American politics nerds like me are watching that one really carefully. We're still waiting to see what the grand jury does in that. And then there are a whole bunch of federal cases. So there's a federal case related to January 6th. We don't know if there'll be an indictment there. And just to underline again, Donald Trump denies wrongdoing in all of these cases. Of course, Trump isn't alone in controversy around the handling of sensitive documents. I mean, classified papers relating to the Obama administration were found in President Biden's home and office too. Right, John? Yeah, that's right. And that's a point that Donald Trump supporters and Republicans will make repeatedly, that there's a double standard here. Joe Biden had classified documents at his home in Delaware. And so why is Donald Trump being prosecuted and Joe Biden's not? I think there is a legitimate answer to that, which is that Joe Biden's team seem to have genuinely made every effort they can to cooperate with uh, the FBI and the Justice Department and in fairly good faith tried to hand over everything they had. And with Donald Trump, that wasn't the case. But it's very easy to lose that distinction and say that there's a terrible double standard here, hence all the witch hunt stuff. And I think politically, all of this is confusing enough that for Donald Trump supporters, at least, there are enough reasons to stick with him through this. And what happens next with Mr. Trump? I think the question on everyone's minds is, will he still be able to run for president? So in the very short time, Ari, what happens next is that next Tuesday, he's due to report to a courthouse in Miami to be arraigned in this case. And then in the longer term, can he still run for president? Yes, absolutely, he can. One of the things that I'll be trying to figure out over the next couple of months is what effect these cases have on his standing in the Republican primary. He is, as you know, miles ahead of the rest of the field in the Republican primary. So far, the cases against him haven't hurt his lead at all. They may even be helping him. And so he is the overwhelming favourite to be the Republican nominee. And then if he is the Republican nominee, he surely stands a good chance of becoming America's next president. I'm not saying that's the most likely scenario, but it's a very possible one. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says a candidate who's on trial or has even been convicted can't run for president. So yes, he can still run for president and is going to. And these cases, I don't think will derail that. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ori. And you can hear more from John and our colleagues about the state of the Republican primary race in this week's edition of Checks and Balance, out later today. Download it wherever you get this podcast. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, 
and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. In New York, protesters carried banners that read, Climate Emergency. They wore masks, and they weren't props. Photos of New York's famous skyline, shrouded in an orange haze, are appearing online. They've been put next to pictures from the post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie, Blade Runner 2049, and both scenes look horrifyingly similar. Measured by overall pollution, New York usually ranks in the middle of global cities on the air quality index. But at one point this week, it fell to the worst of any big city in the world. These are unprecedented numbers. Kathy Hochul, New York's governor, stressed what an unusual situation this is. You know, we would be concerned about a 200 level, which is where we are in much of the state today, 150, 200, 250. But for areas of our state, even yesterday, to have hit 400, that is extraordinary. And this is the worst air quality we've had at least since the 1960s when we started monitoring. And the damage doesn't end in the city. People far beyond New York have been told to stay indoors. It smells, but it's not overpowering. But it's ruining my photo moment. I cannot see the Capitol building, and this would be a wonderful shot down the street there. 13 states in the east of the U.S. have issued air quality alerts. I've been here for 25 years. I've never, ever seen it anywhere close to this before. This is really amazing. Officials in Washington, D.C. issued a code purple for air quality yesterday, meaning that the air wasn't healthy for anyone to breathe. The smoke appears to be moving on, but it is still dangerous for those with underlying health conditions. This has all come from wildfires north of America's border, which this year are burning earlier and faster than usual. There are hundreds of wildfires burning across Canada right now. Ainsley Johnston is a data journalist for The Economist. This spring has been particularly dry. May was the seventh driest on record. By early June, the area burnt by wildfires in Canada was 13 times greater than normal and far above the total for the whole of 2022. And the smoke from those fires has drifted south and east into the United States. This is pretty unusual. It means smoke is affecting a part of the US that's unaccustomed to it. So if this is so unusual, why is it happening now? In part, it's because a lot of the fires are burning in Quebec, which is an area that doesn't normally have so many wildfires. But it's also because of this atmospheric phenomenon called a heat dome. And this is when an area of the atmosphere traps hot air and prevents it from circulating around. Normally in the Quebec area, winds travel to the east, out into the Atlantic. And that would usually take smoke away from the coastal cities. But that's not what's happening right now. At the moment, because of the heat dome, air is flowing clockwise around the dome and it's sending smoke from Quebec south 
into the eastern coast of the US. Now, public officials in America, including New York's mayor, have urged people to stay indoors and to wear masks. What are the specific health concerns arising from this smog? Smoke is made up of a mixture of gases and also these small particles which are produced by burning material. Some of these particles collectively are known as PM2.5, which just refers to their size. And these particles, because they're so tiny, can infiltrate deep into the lungs. And this can be really bad for people with respiratory conditions like asthma or COPD and can just irritate people's respiratory tract. And why is this especially a problem for America's East Coast? So the East Coast of America is pretty unaccustomed to fires and smoke, but it's a really densely populated area. Wildfires typically affect the West, states like California and Idaho, but often the smoke there is blowing into rural areas rather than into the big cities. Although the West Coast has more frequent fires, the smoke affecting the East Coast has the possibility to affect a lot more lungs. And do we know yet how bad these fires have been for air quality? Yes. So in certain parts of the US, the air quality was particularly bad. In New York, for example, the air quality index, which is a measure of how polluted the air is, hit 413. And that's on a scale of zero, perfectly clean air, to 500. Looking across the whole of America, we gathered all of the available data for the 6th of June and calculated an estimate of the average air quality experienced by all Americans, including those who were not in areas of smoke. From our calculation, we found that the average air quality index was around 80, and that makes the 6th of June the worst day of the last decade. It surpassed the previous high of 79, which was recorded on June 18th, 2021, which was a day when a lot of cities around the country experienced high ozone levels. And Ainsley, in light of all of this, should we be worried about the coming summer? It doesn't look great. Right now, there are around 240 wildfires that are burning out of control in Canada. And there's also no sign of the heat dome ending. So while those fires continue to burn and the heat dome is swirling air down into the east coast of the US, a lot of cities will continue to be covered in smoke. And beyond that, it's also worrying that global warming is making wildfires more common. Ainsley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ori. In the very early 2000s, a number of journalists began to make their way to the town of Meteki in Georgia. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. It seemed a strange place to go. It was a farming town, dirt poor. There were no real streets to speak of, although they were grandly all named after Stalin. They were just dirt roads full of potholes. But they were going to this place to meet a particular woman. The woman, too, seemed perhaps a strange person to grab their interest. She was in her early 70s. Her name was Vera Putina. She was a vigorous old lady lived by herself with a bit of help from her three daughters, was very intrepid at chopping up firewood, clumping around the place, doing quite arduous jobs for someone of that age. She didn't have any teeth, but she did have a very interesting story to tell. She knew, as far as she was concerned, 
that she was the real mother of Vladimir Putin. When journalists came to the house, at least in the beginning, she showed them photographs of a boy. The boy had the same face in every photograph, longish blonde hair, blue eyes rather like hers, and often a rather wary sidelong look, as though he was a distrustful child and had had a bad childhood, as indeed he had because Vera Putina had had to abandon him when he was about nine years old. She had to show them copies of the photographs because the originals had been taken away by the KGB. Vera hadn't actually emerged until 1999, when suddenly Putin had emerged on the world stage as well. He had been a shadowy KGB officer who was suddenly picked by Yeltsin. And then when Yeltsin stepped down, he became president of Russia. The story that she told was that he was the result of a fling at Agricultural College, a fling with a student called Platon Primakov. They'd fallen madly in love just for a few days, or at least she had fallen in love with him, but then, rather distressingly, she received a letter from his wife saying that she had better keep her hands off him. So she broke off this love affair the next day when she had received the letter, but she was already pregnant, as it turned out, with a boy who she called Vladimir. She, in fact, never gave him the name Vladimir herself. She called him Vova, but she was devoted to him as long as she could be. When she went on an agricultural placement to Tashkent, she met a man called Georgi Osipashvili, who was a Georgian. And she had a rather longer-lasting affair with him, and in the end they decided to get married. But, of course, the little boy was on the scene. At first, Georgi accepted him, but then as they began to have children of their own, he changed his mind. And he didn't much like Vova. He didn't like having him round the house. They were full of arguments anyway in this marriage. Vera and Georgi argued almost the whole time. And it seemed that Vova was the main reason that they disagreed. Although, to her mind, he was not a nuisance at all. He was a quiet boy. He liked fishing. He also liked reading, especially Russian fables. And he did beautiful calligraphy and sent greeting cards to the family's friends. What was perhaps slightly more worrying about him was he had a terrific temper. When he did wrestling or judo, which he was very fond of, as, of course, Putin still is, he would have to win the bout. He couldn't bear losing. He had to be the best boy in the group. Otherwise, though, he didn't really raise his voice around the house, but Georgi certainly raised his voice to him and said that he'd like to kick the bastard out. In the end, Vera got so worried about this that she took Vova away to her parents. But her parents were too ill to deal with him. 
and they sent him instead to a military school, a very strict boarding school, and Vera simply lost touch with him, until she realised by some means later on that Vova had joined the KGB. That was her story of where Putin had come from. Now Putin's own story of his early childhood was quite different. He said his real parents were Vladimir Putin Sr. and Maria Putina, a couple who lived in Leningrad. Vladimir Putin Sr. was a mechanic in the Navy and fought bravely in the Second World War. He himself, he said, was born after the war in 1952. Vera said that her Vova was born in 1950. The discrepancy between the dates, Vera said, was that he had to be kept back two years at school because his Russian wasn't really good enough. Of course, he'd been brought up in Georgia, by her account, until he was nine and spoke mostly Georgian. So the whole thing was rather difficult as far as the president of Russia was concerned. He didn't really, at that stage, want connections with Georgia, which was an independent state after the fall of the Soviet Union. She thought about him tremendously and wondered why he had so easily said that his mother was dead. And he had always referred to his foster mother as his mother, and this really hurt Vera. Her only wish, really, was that he would come to the village of Meteki and that he would meet her and she could say to him, I'm really sorry that I sent you to my parents. I'm sorry I abandoned you. She did sometimes dream that it had happened. And when she told him this, he didn't reply ever and he would be pulled away by someone else in the dream. She thought she dreamed like this because she lit candles for Vova in church. She knew she could never break through to him. There was too much of a gulf between her poor Georgian village and the president in his palace. But to the end of her life, she looked at the one photo that the KGB had left to her, and she loved him like a mother. Anne Rowe on Vera Putina, who has died aged 97. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jat Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe, helped this week by Timo Saylor. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kainers, Barclay Bram, and Sarah Larniuk with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa and Peter Granitz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.